The health of downtown Columbus. The Blue Jackets struggle on and off the ice. And a shakeup in the Lee Fisher campaign. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Bill Cohen, Statehouse Correspondent for Ohio Public Radio. Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Dale Butland, Democratic Strategist. And Terry Casey, Republican Strategist. Over the past eight years, there has been a lot of work and a lot of money spent on downtown Columbus. New parks are being built, more people are living downtown, the arena district has blossomed. But there are still a lot of vacant storefronts and a lot of those new condos sit empty. The mayor has launched a new downtown planning process, and Daryl Rowland, that gives us a chance to assess how downtown is doing, what needs to be done, and what are some of the successes that they can crow about. City fathers probably don't want to admit it, but uh, probably the majority of people in Columbus didn't realize we had a downtown plan from 2002 that we were working under. Um, that being said, there there was one. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening from uh, you know, the North Bank to the Scioto Mile, and all these things have names. If you haven't been downtown lately, a lot of stuff are happening. Um, the assessment this week was sort of the old, we've done a lot, but we still have a long ways to go. So sort of one of those mixed bag things. Yeah. Um, back in 2002, they wanted to pump in about 1,000 new residential units a year and, and fill them uh, for 10,000 total by 2012. They're a little bit over, or not quite halfway there right now, so, but they're saying, hey, with the last two years, we're lucky to have the ones we have. And the big point they're emphasizing, as far as downtown residential, they reversed a slide that had been going on for like 50 years. So a lot of stuff happening and a lot of stuff, uh, you know, not all the problems are solved by any stretch. I think they should have done something innovative like try and make downtown more attractive to businesses that would want to be there. And unfortunately, their priorities, like they are completing now two different bridges that are going to cost $100 million. They could have gotten by with one of them at $35 million, $100 million in the parks downtown. We're going to get a picture of you, Terry, yeah. driving over that bridge someday. Yeah. <laughs> well, well th you won't need a, a big lens because there won't be much traffic because nobody yeah. cares. I know. Terry, is, Terry is fully in character today as the troll under the bridge. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would say, look, Mayor Coleman, I think, has done an admir admirable job so far. Uh, as uh, Daryl pointed out, uh, you've got thousands more people living downtown than you had 10 years ago. They haven't met the projections uh, quite, but look, we've had a two-year housing meltdown. The challenge now, I think, is to build affordable housing downtown. We've got a lot of the condos been bought up by rich folks. That's fine, but you need a mix if you're going to have revitalization. That's why this new project, this Daimler project at the corners of what, Gay, Gay and Grant? This is housing aimed at CCAD students. Exact, well, not just them, but it turns out the four colleges downtown. Yeah. The idea is that this would be student housing aimed at them, but I think the idea here is to get a good mix of folks downtown, and I think that's a great idea. But in addition to having people live downtown, I think we're getting a lot of more people from the suburbs and from, from outlying areas just coming into downtown for various activities. As the dispatch put it, you know, there's a new relationship between people and the river. A lot of performances on the river. You got that thing where they light bonfires on the Scioto. I mean, before you wouldn't go near the river, and now it's getting cleaned up a little bit, and there's activities, and I, and I think that, that gives people a new, a new image of the place. Rolling on the river. <laughs> and I'm going to jump in and agree with Dale. Part of the mistake was, and they were tax-subsidized by the other residents in Columbus, 
there was too much of a target on upscale 300, 400, $500,000 housing, uh, but the tax subsidies are very high and very costly to the rest of the taxpayers. The office, you mentioned the business office vacancy the city claims has it's been cut in half, basically from 26% to 14%, and they've added a million square feet of office space. So the arena district is where a lot of this is happening. Um, that's and, certainly and done well. most of the arena district was a shift of like law firms from the Huntington Center building to the arena district. So you really didn't gain. I mean, the secret is you got to bring in jobs and make Columbus more attractive. But at least they didn't go to the suburbs. I mean, it's still downtown. I mean, in the past, those would have gone into office parks in Dublin, Worthington, Westerville, things like that. The city officials are very happy that uh, they, they'd be listening to this discussion. We've gone for five minutes and no one has said the words city center. Yes. So we've kind of moved on to that. But that it's remains. on my list here, though. <laughs> that, that remains one of the, the major questions as yeah. that, you know, that still nice building crumbles and we develop Columbus Commons, a new park. Is that going to work? Is that going to fit in with the rest of the mix? New courthouse and other things downtown. And, and they haven't given us a price tag on the new city center park. I think early in the dispatch they set a figure of around 160 million, and they haven't made clear who gets the uh, glorious opportunity to pay for that. I would argue that tearing down the mall is an accomplishment because my hometown, this dead downtown mall, has is still sitting there empty, and it's just a big, it's a big white elephant. At least it's gone. You have a park that you can do something with it down the road. A green elephant. <laughs> That's right. Um, is there too much emphasis on downtown? A lot of the neighborhood folks say, look, you mentioned your bridges, Terry, and the park, the Sayota Mile, all this money being spent downtown. Well, is there too much emphasis on it? Well, one of the things that really bothered me in the dispatch this week, they talked about how much the city was going to finally spend on paving out of the capital dollars, but they aren't spending as much as needed, and part of it is because they peeled off $6.5 million to take care of one developer's project. Uh, at the old Columbus Coated Fabrics project. So certain developers get taken care of with goodies. Like on Gay Street, they spent $20 million alone to make Gay Street, instead of being one way westbound, to make it two ways and put some flowers in the median. But that's $20 million, and there's some people in the neighborhoods that would like to, the basic of pave the street. Okay. The health of the arena district largely depends on the health of the Blue Jackets, and they are not too healthy on or off the ice right now. They are near the bottom of the National Hockey League standings, and this week the team fired the coach who just last year brought them to the playoffs for the first time. Off the ice, quiet negotiations on a plan to rework the Jackets' arena lease have been very quiet. Terry Casey, which comes first, the Blue Jackets winning again or the arena deal? Uh, well, or you could end up with zero for zero. It's mm -hmm. certainly challenging. One of the problems, we talked about this earlier, when you read the OSU professor's report, uh, basically young Mr. McConnell doesn't want to write a $12 million each year subsidy check, but even if they got rent free from Nationwide, and that's say $5 million, there's still a $7 million gap, and that only gets you to an average team, not a winning team. So it's definitely a problem, because Columbus is a market that likes a winner and they like what's happened in the arena district, but do they really want to pay higher taxes uh, or have some other things shifted from where it's being spent now? I think that's a very good point. You know, the taxpayers of this city uh, said pretty loudly three different times that they had no interest in building this stadium uh, before Nationwide finally opened its wallet and did so. But what's interesting to me is the way this argument is going now. They're saying that without the Blue Jackets, the arena district goes in the dumper 
And so regular people, all us average folks, just simply must do something to save the arena district. But regular folks aren't the ones who bought uh, expensive condos down there and they don't have a sizable investment down there. The rich folks and the corporations do. And I get it, you know, for nine months of the year when the, when the Clippers are not playing, all you'd have if the Jackets leave down there are a bunch of restaurants and bars not appreciably different from the Short North or the Brewery District or German Village. And that's why I've said from the beginning that saying no dice, if you will, to a, to a casino down there might be a bad idea that would come back to bite them. Maybe it has, but the point is they have no one to blame but themselves, and I think it's a stretch for them to ask average folks to bail them out with their tax dollars. The mayor told the dispatch this week it's one of the most complicated financial transactions he has ever seen as a lawyer and a mayor. That would seem to suggest that there is, they're trying to get private money combined with public money in there. Right. Is there any way that they can do it without having a combination of the two? I would argue it's not very complicated at all. I mean, part of the problem, the NHL is a bad place to have a sports team because you don't have any lucrative or really any appreciable TV contracts and you still have stars that expect to be paid two to seven million dollar a year uh, payments in, in salary. So it's not that complicated. What's complicated is how to explain it to the taxpayers that they're going to have to pick up part of the tab. Uh, you know, a lot of the boosters of the, of the jacket say, well, you know, it's been a decade since the voters said no. So they might have changed their minds. I, well, that may be true. Mm -hmm. But what that means is uh, don't assume they've changed their minds. If you are going to give a big chunk of public dollars to this whole endeavor, then you should go back to the voters, not just funnel the money uh, to the team or the arena in kind of some small uh, undercover ways. Well, and I think part of the, the maneuvering, if you will, uh, the negotiations, uh, perhaps the reason was complicated, there's been certain pledges I know the county has made not to dip into the general fund. Um, this gets a little esoteric from the point of view of the taxpayer, but this may be sort of Solomon's decision here of trying to have it both ways. We don't dip into the general fund, but we do it through fees, through this, through that. Maybe we kind of have it both ways. Here's a question I have, and forgive my ignorance on this. Does Nationwide own the stadium? They own the uh, arena, yes. All right, so here's, so here's my question. If the problem, they say, is with the stadium lease, the terms of the stadium lease, and Nationwide built the stadium and owns the stadium, and they're also an investor in the Blue Jackets, can't Nationwide change the terms of the lease itself? My understanding, Nationwide doesn't own the Blue Jackets. Right. Uh, now, there's a certain newspaper company in town that owns a small portion of the arena and of the Blue Jackets, but young Mr. McConnell, since his dad... John H. has passed away, is the main owner of the Blue Jackets. But Nationwide has a problem because they have stockholders and they have customers and they have fiduciary responsibility. So they just can't give away something for free. Uh, and that's part of the problem they're in. Okay. We'll see. Now to politics. A few developments in the campaign 2010 this week. The headlines, the Democrats find a candidate for Supreme Court Justice, Franklin County Judge Eric Brown. John Kasich faces complaints he is ducking the media. And the state GOP upsets the Tea Party, and Lee Fisher changes campaign chairpersons. Dale Butlin, Lee Fisher changes his campaign manager three months before the primary. That's not a good sign. Well, no, it's not a good sign, but I, don't, I also don't think it's fatal for a couple of reasons. Number one, the change in the campaign managers pretty much inside baseball. Uh, to, most voters don't care or even know, know about it. Secondly, 
got to remember, one of the purposes of a primary, one of the good purposes of a primary, is this kind of a shakedown cruise before you get to the general. You find problems, you fix things that need to be fixed before you get to the general. Uh, so I don't think that's a major problem. I think Jennifer Bruner has a much bigger problem. Um, she, Lee has all of the party endorsements, and he has got $1.8 million in the bank. She has $61,000 in the bank. Now, I know the polls show it's still fairly close, but nobody on this side, anyway, has run a single television ad yet. And for better or worse, television ads in a statewide campaign, with all due respect to grassroots campaigning, in a statewide campaign, television uh, ads are critical, and $61,000 is not going to be enough to buy you statewide cable uh, during reruns of Ishtar at 3 in the morning, you know? So, so I, I think she's got a real problem. I think Lee has to be the odds-on favorite to win. Well, I think the sad commentary on Fisher, though, is yes, you're right, he's probably going to win the primary. But he's, you know, he's been in public life in, in state government and politics for 25, 30 years, was very active, especially in the state Senate and as attorney general, did a lot of things, kind of populist kind of things, and yet a lot of Ohioans say they've, they've barely heard of him, and I, I, I'm just amazed at, at what kind of low uh, low recognition he has. I, I, the, excuse me, let me just say that I think Bill's right. I mean, when you get to the general, assuming that this race ends up being Fisher versus Portman, I think Fisher has a real uphill fight. History tells us this is going to be a bad year for Democrats, and um, uh, unless Lee can channel his inner populist uh, <laughs> uh, something along the lines of Howard Metzenbaum, for instance, uh, I think this race is poor Portman's to lose. The problem is, I'm not sure Lee has a populist bone in his body. And if this race is between a cautious Democrat and a lackluster but traditional Republican, um, I think we lose. And the big thing is that traditional Republican is strong in southwestern Ohio and has six million in the bank. Uh, and uh, I have to agree with Dale on a number of the things. I mean, Lee Fisher is not the best candidate, uh, but with that money advantage, he's going to win the primary, uh, but then what do you have? Because it was 20 years since Lee Fisher last won on his own statewide, and he won by a grand total of 1,234 votes. It wasn't exactly a landslide in 1990. Let's get to the complaints about John Kasich. He um, is taking complaints now from Ted Strickland, not surprisingly, but you know some grumblings on the part of the reporters and media observers that he's not really had a full-fledged, hard-nosed interview with the local media. He's been on Fox News a couple of times. He's been on CNBC, very friendly interviews, but no hard-hitting interviews with the State House Press Corps. I, I was right there when he announced his lieutenant governor on January 14th. I think Bill Cohen was there. The dispatch mm -hmm. had Joe Hallett front mm -hmm. and center, mm -hmm. uh, and they had another reporter there, and he answered a whole bunch of questions and okay, that's chat reporters. Well, uh, my understanding, he's got a big interview with Bill Cohen coming up. And, uh, I mean, Ted Strickland, I've got a whole page of quotes from 2006, including Bill Cohen, talking about how and this guy just didn't have any specifics, didn't answer any questions. Mm -hmm. And that was three or four months out from election, not eight or nine months let's, out. Let's get well, I think that's an untrue characterization, quite frankly, of 06. Ted Strickland answered questions. He may not have answered them to satisfaction. He may not have given us the details that we would have liked. Um, Ted Strickland has been the most accessible governor, for better or worse, since, since I've been covering state government. Um, John Kasich has, you know, he's talked to us. His time's been very limited with us. Um, I don't know if people care if they talk to yeah, the media. Let's get but back to the to extent that the, the mainstream media still has a role in all this and represents the people asking questions that, you know, we want to hear about details of these tax plans and how are you going to balance 
uh, th this budget with this huge deficit coming down. Well, I mean, we're asking both candidates this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to Kasich for a, a moment, because I don't think it's a, a surprise why the great Kasichini would be doing a disappearing act, you know, with the press. The truth is, is that the polls now show him with a slight lead, but those same polls all show people own next to nothing about this guy. So if you're winning by not saying anything, why change? Yeah. And every time he does open his mouth, he reveals himself to be the extremist that he is. For example, mm -hmm. his proposal to completely eliminate the state income tax, which leads me to believe, I think I know what the strategy is. Kasich has said that as a candidate for governor, he's going to stand on his ideas. I figure that he thinks if he stands on them, no one will be able to see them. Let's get to real quick the Supreme <laughs> Court race. Eric Brown, Franklin County judge, well known here, Central Ohio, can he win? statewide against Maureen O'Connor for Supreme Court justice, and why did it take Democrats a year to find a candidate? Well, part of it, Eric Brown, people knew in 08 he wanted to run for Chief Justice. That's why he ran for probate court. In the dispatch article this week, they noted in the editorial board, they asked him, don't you want to run for the Supreme Court? He said, no, no, no. But everyone knew he wanted to run for Supreme Court. Uh, the problem is that he wanted to work out a deal so that if Maureen got elected Chief Justice, would Governor Strickland appoint him mm -hmm. as to her vacant seat on the court? And apparently he got the deal from the governor. Which is name is better, O'Connor or Brown? Historically, Brown. <laughs> but We're being Maureen out. is good, too. Uh -huh. And O'Connor, I think she headed up the entire ticket, not right. just the Republican ticket. Yeah. She got more votes than anybody else, even in a, de even in a Democratic Obama year. Yeah. She beat Obama. She beat everybody. So and, she's got a good name. And she would have to be the favorite, uh, assuming she's the nominee, assuming Petro doesn't get in the race and upset her. She would have to be the favorite against Brown. But there's two caveats. Uh, one is that to the extent the voters are interested in balance on the court, uh, you know, all seven seats have been held by Republicans for what seems like since the Stone Age. <laughs> and the second thing is, right now there's a real anti-incumbency sentiment out there in the electorate. Um, and that could hurt her, too. Of course, whether that sentiment uh, also extends to Supreme Court seats is another yeah, question that remains to be seen. I mean, that's the thing. It, your ballot doesn't show who's the incumbent. It doesn't even show the party label, as you, yeah. as you well know. Let's get to our fourth election. topic. And what is bound to be a campaign issue, the Inspector General this week issued a highly critical report on former Public Safety Director Henry Guzman. Tom Charles said Guzman deliberately refused to implement a change in state law designed to stop undocumented residents from getting vehicle registrations. Daryl Rowland, this began with a story in the dispatch about undocumented residents right. getting these registrations. And the, the, the policy was stopped because of concerns expressed by Latino business people. Right, yes, my colleague Randy Ludlow led the, led the pack on this. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the investigators were mystified as to why this went on for so long. Um, there's really no explanation that Guzman offered that makes any sense. He really didn't have an explanation. So what's going on here? I, I, there's more to come in this. There, uh, there's gonna be a criminal investigation. There is a criminal investigation. Uh, and we'll see how this shakes out because you know thousands of people got registration that should not have. And, uh, and the governor's, you know, does this splash on Governor Strickland politically? Um, the governor has told us personally he did not know anything about this until he read it in the paper. So we're glad he has a, a subscription. <laughs> <on it. laughs> and, and I think the dispatch has done a great job dogging and researching this, but there's a bunch more shoes to fall, including with the current new public safety director. And Channel 10 has done a lot on, including the letter from Tom Rice, 
who was Highway Patrol Superintendent appointed in 89 when Dick Celeste was governor, but he basically says the governor's office in the sting to arrest illegal contraband being traded at the governor's mansion, that law enforcement people went to the person who was going to perpetrate the crime and told them, don't go there because we're going to arrest you. So there's a lot more to come, and within the Highway Patrol, there's a lot of unhappiness with the politicizing of the State Highway Patrol. I think one thing we can all agree on around this table, and probably, uh, probably our viewers too, and that is if Mr. Guzman really did do what it is alleged that he did, namely uh, canceled a planned crackdown on fraudulent uh, drivers, uh, and he did it to line the pockets of certain Latino car dealers and other business people, then he's put every Ohioan who uses the roads at risk. And if that's the case, he certainly deserves to be prosecuted. Now, Guzman's supporters are hinting that, you know, one reason he might have done it was because he had questions about the constitutionality of of whether or not it's fair to get into the state to get into immigration matters. And I'm not saying that it has a lot yeah. of merit, uh, because in general, what you say is, well, that's not his job. You sue like they actually have sued. Let a court decide that. It's not really an administrator's job to, to, to change, to not obey rules and laws. One of the supporters who claims that is Joe Moss, who's a panelist on this show and was also mentioned in that report. He complains that they, didn't, they, they never talked to him, uh, even though he was he was accused of, or at least suggested there might be a conflict of interest because of his representation there. As the report points out, however, that, I mean, being done under the guise of protecting Latino rights, many Latinos were exploited in this yep. and charged, you know, $100, $200 to get a $40 registration if it yep. was done legally and proper. This is going to be a great TV ad for the Republicans, especially in Southwest Ohio. Terry has probably already written it, yep. and it probably already has grainy black and white footage of Mexicans sneaking across the border, and it could be very powerful. Well, it, it's just, it raises the question, Governor Strickland has had to fire and get rid of so many top-level cabinet members. This is just one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be more to come because clearly it's a big scandal and I think ultimately it'll go back to the chief lawyer uh, in the governor's office telling Highway Patrol and public safety people not to do their job, which is not good practice. But at least the Democrats won't have to run the bumper sticker that the Republicans did in 2006. Remember that one? Never, never been indicted. We've got to get to topic five real quick. Perhaps space is not the final frontier, it's bipartisanship. This week, a bipartisan compromise sent the renewal of the third frontier project to the May ballot. House Democrats wanted a $950 million high-tech job stimulus program. Senate Republicans wanted a $500 million plan. They met in the middle. Imagine that. Bill Cohen, bipartisan compromise. Was it that hard? Uh, no, it really wasn't that hard. They made it $700 million over four years. Democrats and Republicans alike voting for it. Even John Kasich endorsing it. I was a little surprised at that because I thought he might have said this is corporate welfare. You're handing taxpayer cash to companies and picking winners and losers. But even he said it was a good idea. So he that also just said shows he you. He forward to doing it when, yeah, he hopes it when to he's do governor. It himself, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that just shows you the yeah. widespread support. Only some, some fairly conservative, you know, free market types say, well, this is not a good idea. You're, hand, you're getting government involved in, in free enterprise. But I think the thing will probably pass assuming they don't have either Taft or Strickland in the commercial say and vote for it. Because the first time they tried to do Third Frontier, they had Taft doing the commercials, which said it was a partisan issue. So if they run a true bipartisan campaign, it ought to pass, even though this lackluster primary is going to be pretty boring. There's no public works money in this one. The one that passed had it. The one that failed didn't. Does no public works money in this proposal hurt its chances at passage in May? 
It does, but I still think it has a good chance of passing because one reason the original one didn't pass is because the Farm Bureau quietly came out against it, said there's no research here for farm areas. And the second time they fixed that, and I think they'd be in back of this uh, new one, I think that would help fix the problem. Dale, would you put Ted Strickland's face on this commercial, touting a jobs program? Well, I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that you need any politician's face. I'm not as sure as Terry is that it would hurt the uh, issue, but my view has always been it's much better to get regular people's faces, mm -hmm. the kinds of people who would benefit from these jobs and so forth. I, I think that's your selling point. Okay, let's get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, some predictions for the weeks ahead. Bill Cohen, you're up first. Well, remember all that debate in 2008 over the payday loans, and the legislators and voters alike passed a big crackdown. And then we found out last year that a lot of the uh, stores were kind of getting around the spirit of the law and still charging almost as much as before. So some legislators said we need crackdown number two. But that was months ago, and we're still, even the, even the Democrats in the Ohio House, who you'd think would really want to crack down, have yet to even get the plan out of committee. So it's just kind of remarkable there's been such inaction on this. Okay. Daryl. Super Bowl weekend, how can we avoid it? Saints, Colts, I predict, I think we're going to have a clear winner. I think the Who will rock halftime. <laughs> Am I showing my age? <laughs> the Who, the halftime performer at the Super Bowl this week in Miami. Dale? Well, that was a sissy prediction. I'm going to go, I, I'm going I'm to actually take a side here. I, and I'm going to say that I think the winner is going to be New Orleans, or as they said, they are Nolans. And I think that almost everybody outside of Indianapolis, perhaps, and the state of Indiana are going to be pulling for the Saints because, my goodness, what a story. It would be. I'm going to stay away from sports and go safer in politics. Mary Jo Kilroy is going to regret her vote this past week to increase the national debt ceiling to $14.3 trillion. When she and President Obama took office a little over a year ago, the debt ceiling was at $10.626 That's quite an increase. Taxpayers are concerned about who's going to pay for it and what's it going to do to the economy long term. All right. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. We urge you to check out our website. There you can get a preview of the topics we're going to discuss. You can check out streaming video in case you miss a show. You can also get a link to our Facebook page and become a fan, get updates through that way. There's also a link to my blog. But I shan't Twitter. And sorry to our producer, Diana Bergerman, a big Colts fan. I shan't root for the Colts. Go Saints. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good one.